This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to The Way Forward. I'm Jack Otter and my guest this week is Ben Harrison, Head of Advisor Solutions at BNY Mellon Pershing. We were seeing a lot of changes in the custodian space even before the pandemic turned the world upside down. So we've got a lot to talk about, Ben. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll just jump right in if that's okay with you. Great. Thanks for having me, Jack. And thanks. Uh, congrats on your new expanded role at Barron's as well. Wow. Thanks. I appreciate it, Ben. Um, by the way, um, I'm calling you from Westchester, New York. Where are you? I'm in Westfield, New Jersey today. Oh, okay, not not far away, other side of the river. <laughs> uh, so it's been almost a year since you began transitioning into your new role, about six months, I think, before you formally became head of the RIA custody business at Pershing. So tell us what the past year has been like. Um, you know, we went into lockdown, what, about two weeks after your new role was announced? Yeah, uh, it's been a very interesting year, to say the least, uh, Jack. Uh but, you know, I think um, as we think about it, there's this great reset happening and uh, that's happening for us. It's happening for our clients. It's happening in the industry. And, um, you know, as I look back on this uh, year that we just, uh, uh, you know, really culminated, it's, um, it's amazing that um, this is going to be a point in time where we look back and we say, Everything changed in 2020, and uh, you know, kind of back to your question uh, about you know my uh, taking on this leadership role during a pandemic. Looking back on that now, I really reflect uh, and think that it's actually ideal uh, timing in many respects. It was an immersion into the business. Um, really, uh, you know, really we kicked it off right as the pandemic was in the lockdown uh, started, so it was kind of head first. Um, and uh, right into it. Uh, but at the same time, it really provided a laser focus on uh, focusing on our people, uh, on our clients, and on our strategy of what we needed to do to really uh, focus on the needs of our business and uh, not only take care of the current situation, but also uh, look to the, to the future. So there was many key lessons uh, during that time. Uh, that really, at the end of the day, it validated our business model and our focus, and uh, was uh, you know very uh, very uh, instructive in terms of how we think about the future. So let's take two of those. One maybe that was, as you said, validating something you were already doing, and you realized, wow, I'm glad we we're doing that. And then something else maybe that was more challenging than you expected, and, and you had to tack your, you know, ch change your approach a little bit to make that work. You know, the things that uh, we learned in the pandemic and really validated our strategy was uh, the really the fact that technology is a business imperative. It's no longer a nice to have, and and really the importance of uh, a a strategy uh, that aligns technology and people uh, was something that was already underway. But uh, as we think about it, it it greatly was accelerated in the midst of of the pandemic. So that was really important, and we saw this accelerated shift uh, towards uh, the digitization of our business. Uh, and really, um, anybody that wasn't already full speed ahead on engaging from 
a digital standpoint, whether that was client onboarding or uh, engaging on a regular basis via video conference or uh, the way in which clients and advisors were going to touch and feel the experience of whether it be their custodian or their investment professional, their their financial advisor, uh, that was uh, just greatly uh, influenced by this time. And as we said, it accelerated. So if you think about everything that was happening in our lives, uh, whether that be our work life, our ch- children's school lives, our you know, personal lives, entertainment, everything, uh, you know, this, this great move towards uh, digitization was uh, really, really important. I would say the one area that um, we, we didn't know how to grapple with uh, or was, you know, something that we were all, uh, you know, really uh, struggling with at first was the fact that we were no longer in person with one another. It was completely virtual first. So uh, running a business and making sure that you're close to your people, that you're supporting your people, that you are um, uh, doing everything that you can to support clients in a world where you can't walk into the office and see everybody every day was really, really uh, difficult. I would say we adapted uh, really quickly to it. And probably the biggest lesson there was a people-first strategy was really uh, very, very simple, but so important. If we could put our people in a position where they were safe, uh, had the tools necessary to serve their clients and do it effectively, then everything else really kind of takes care of itself. So um, we had we had a lot of uh, you know disaster planning in advance of a pandemic. We never really thought it would come to this. But falling back on all those redundancies that we had were, was just uh, critical. And what we've seen is the advisory space um, has done a great job in terms of uh, continuing to meet clients' needs and moving the industry forward, despite the fact that most people are still remote. The people thing is really interesting. It's If you had a solid team already and the culture was good, then I, I feel like the transition was okay. But onboarding new people, starting a relationship uh, virtually without any pe- you know, person-to-person contact has, has certainly been tough. So going forward, what are the key priorities now that, that might not have been January of 2021 uh, if, if we weren't in a pandemic, or maybe they're just the same? So a lot, uh, a lot is the same and uh, a lot has changed. I would say as we took an inventory of our business uh, model, uh, again, we were extraordinarily f- fortunate to be in this business, to have such strong clients. Uh, this business is growing. There's a movement uh, that is propelling the fiduciary advice business and uh and we've been uh, very, uh, very lucky and fortunate to be in a in a portion of the industry that's uh, seeing this expansion. So what hasn't changed is really our focus uh, on the business. And at the end of the day, uh, our uh, our mission is to uh, really uh, be the most trusted and strategic partner to wealth and advisory firms. So uh, we want to be the engine, the brand behind the brand to help wealth and advisory firms innovate, scale, and grow. So that's, that hasn't changed. That's critically important uh, to what, uh, what we're focused on. Um, what has changed is this uh, incredibly disruptive environment in the marketplace. And uh, 
with disruption comes opportunity. Um, so that's the way that we've been uh, orienting our business. And we took some very uh, specific measures in uh, 2020 to uh, capitalize upon that and to set up our business for success. The first thing that we did was we did uh, launch a new pricing strategy. Uh, and this was in the backdrop. If you recall, pre-pandemic, there was this movement towards uh, zero commissions and the marketplace moving in that dynamic. And it was kind of a one-size-fits-all type of model. What we did is we came to the market with optionality. And we, we not only have a zero uh, commission strategy, but we also have uh, the traditional asset-based or transaction-based model with open architecture cash, as well as an innovative subscription model. So that was really important. Another thing that we did was we expanded our addressable market. So uh, you've heard us through the years uh, talk about the fact that we serve growth-minded, professionally managed firms that serve clients with complex financial lives. That's a big uh, sentence, uh, but we were <laughs> a lot very, of words there. Yeah, we were very focused on that, and we remain focused on that. However, we're expanding on either side of that. So we're focused uh, in addition to this emerging RIA segment. This is a really important growing part of the industry. And this is the segment of advisory firms that have $100 million to $250 million in our uh, definition of that. And that adds to our addressable market. There's about 2,300 RIAs uh, that are in that category. And that was really important for us to... Uh, take our core offering and expand upon that. Uh, on the other side of that, we're expanding towards uh, serving uh, enterprise wealth firms. And as you know, there's a tremendous amount of consolidation happening in the marketplace right now. And that's creating this new uh, category of firms that are large and complex and multi-business line and multi-location. And uh, we've got unique capabilities at, at BNY Mellon. Pershing uh, to, to serve those firms. So uh, a lot of the same uh, in terms of our focus, but you know, really capitalizing on market disruption and what we're seeing in the, in the marketplace, which uh, we believe is going to set us up for success over the next three to five years. Uh, that's a tall goal to be expanding in two kind of opposite directions, frankly, uh, working on two things. Um, I want to, I want to find out for you know, sort of pivot to the to the um, the advisor's perspective, and ask you what you think the winning strategies for firms will be this year and and going forward. That may be a different answer, I guess, for for the 150 million uh, firm uh, as opposed to the you know 10, 20, 30 billion dollar uh, firm that's seen huge growth uh, organically and and through mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, it's interesting, Jack. Uh, you know what we see is actually. Um, there is a lot of similarity, even huh. though those are different business models and different clientele. The top challenge and the number one issue that we see for advisory firms is driving growth. And every meeting that we go to, it's the same uh, type of narrative, uh, how they can continue to grow, whether that's organically or inorganically, particularly with the backdrop of this uh, remote uh, virtual first uh, world that we're living on. So what we've seen is the reliance on market performance um, 
and referrals really uh, throughout the life cycle, at least for the last decade for uh, financial advisory businesses, is just so dependent upon market performance and, and referrals. In fact, uh, we've seen recent studies that uh, suggest that uh, advisory firms uh, get 70% of their new business from existing uh, clients. And that's great. That's It's really important to have a great referral uh, strategy. And that's uh, those are the, the best uh, warm leads that you can get. But sure. in, in order to uh, be uh, successful in this environment, you really need to have a more systematic uh, market-led, uh, business development-led approach in order to... Um, in order to differentiate and, and to add. So growth is the number one challenge that we see, regardless of, of shape or size. You know, you, you've always spoken a lot about growth, and, and it may seem obvious, but I also know advisors who are where, where they are and, and happy where they are. Explain why growth is so important, especially now. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with technology. No, a- absolutely. Growth is uh, is extraordinarily important because it's we, we're in a very competitive environment. And that competitive environment is getting even more competitive. Uh, Everybody wants to be in this space. Uh, So we see this convergence happening in the marketplace. We see the major uh, wirehouses moving towards a goal-based fiduciary advice model. We see, obviously, the boutique RIA uh, business uh, in that market already. We see private equity coming in. They want to bite at the apple. So this uh, competitive environment is just getting extraordinarily tough. And uh, really, in in terms of uh, organizing your business so that you have the capacity for growth. So uh, that's really where we see uh, this need for scale, this need for the ability to grow and to onboard uh, new accounts and new advisors and uh, expand the uh, the set of services and solutions that you're providing to uh, to end clients. So uh, much of that, as you as you mentioned, is technology driven and leveraging the technology coupled with the people in order to set yourself up for that capacity uh, to grow is one of the major things that is so important in this environment. So, so you said something about capacity for growth. Um, how, how do you define that? I, I mean, obviously, you need to provide a good enough service so that if 70% of your business come through referrals, you better have people who want to refer to your business. But, um, but what are the other things that, that distinguish a firm that has that capacity for growth from one that doesn't? Yeah, that's that's a terrific question. We talk a lot about that. We talk about what separates a growth-oriented type of firm and what do they do mm-hmm. differently than than others. And number one, they are built for scale. Um, they have that organizational design in order to structure and capture business. So uh, you also have heard us talk a lot about professional management and the idea there is uh, being very purposeful with your human human capital and letting advisors be advisors and work with clients and develop new business, but have professional managers really lead the the business of financial advice and and have a CEO and a CFO and a and a director of human resources, you know, really focused on those those types of things. Another attribute of a of a growth oriented firm is really uh, a tech 
uh, forward and, and um, creative uh, architecture. So, so really taking full advantage, and this is so crucial right now in what we're seeing, taking full advantage of the digital solutions as well as a communication cadence. So think about our business in the way that we leverage digital tools and we create uh, a you know list of target firms that we want to work with and we you know reach out to them on a, either email or social or uh, omni-channel type of marketing way and then we uh, we continue to nurture those uh, leads through time and as events happen in the marketplace maybe there's uh, maybe there's something that happened in the in the custodial space and you know we have the opportunity to market to them we're gonna we're gonna set that in place advisors need to think of the same uh, type of nurture campaigns and really utilize tools and resources and social uh, and digital tools in order to um, to focus on on those and then and then finally, it's really around uh, shifting to meet the clients where they are and uh, really uh, knowing your client segment extraordinarily well, what their goals are, what it takes in order to make sure that you've got the right pricing mix, the right product mix, the right focus on that end client so that when a need arises in the marketplace, you're there to help uh, with whatever challenge those clients have. So let me ask you about the the pricing model. Um, do you think fees are holding steady? Are they going down? Um, do if they're not going down, I assume an RA has to do more to earn that fee. Well, you're exactly right about that, uh, Jack. Um, and what we've seen, we we do a uh, we do a study annual study with Investment News, and uh, it's uh, we do a fee uh, and. Uh, and relationship survey each year. And what we've found is uh, we've found that over the last decade, the advisory fee has stayed very, very consistent and steady. Um, so in the segment of uh, firms, traditionally, you know, high net worth type of pricing, we see a 75 to 85, 80 basis point uh, fee. And that hasn't compressed over the last decade. Every time I think it's going to, uh, it hasn't compressed, but what we have said uh, and what we have seen uh, to your uh, to your illustration is we see that advisory firms, while they maintain that fee margin, they're doing more for that fee than they ever have before. It used to be uh, solely investment related performance, and mm-hmm. uh, now we've seen that they've obviously expanded to financial planning to a variety of other services and uh, are being pushed to do more and more in order to retain that fee. When you say, so the 70 to 80 bips at, at, at high net worth, where is that cutoff and below that, is it around 1%? Yeah. So, you know, the mass affluent uh, yeah. type of pricing, we would see a 1% type of uh, type of fee. Uh, that would be, you know, really in our, uh, in the research that we have, you know, Anything you know up to about a two million dollar portfolio would be in that one percent uh, area. Gotcha. So I, I had Josh Brown on this podcast a while ago uh, at Ritholtz, um, a firm sure. that's uh, about a billion dollars, but uh, <laughs> their social media presence uh, swings way above that weight class. Um, and one thing that they do is, I believe it's after three things, thirty six months, they send the clients a note and say, "Congratulations, um, uh, we're lowering your fee." And and the logic is sort of threefold. One, um, you mentioned referrals and growth. Um, 
clients have just got a, a price break tend to tell their friends. Um, but also the, the logic in terms of hours worked makes sense, right? After three years, you, you might have settled into a groove. Sure, there'll be life changes, but, but a lot of the work has been done already. Um, so I thought that was an interesting model. And I wondered if you're seeing that elsewhere or is that a, a Ritholtz specialty? So uh, I love that. Uh, I love that uh, thinking. And I love Josh's book right now. I'm actually reading it uh, in terms of uh, how I invest my money. It's really cool to hear uh, or to read the stories of financial professionals and, and what they're doing. Yeah, it's a great concept. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, um, so I love the creativity and the thinking around the evolution of the experience. So that's one of the fundamental uh, issues uh, that we're seeing right now in this AUM model. The AUM model, while it, it is, you know, what the attributes of it that investors really like is there's complete alignment uh, with the investor and the advisor. If you do well, I do well type of mindset sure. uh, and, and a lot uh, of, of good things uh, with that concept. But there are definite inefficiencies there. There is uh, number one, uh, the Ritholtz, uh, you know, the Josh Brown uh, methodology there, which is you do a ton of work at the at the onset of a relationship. You do all of the planning, you do uh, all of the collection of data and paperwork, and it's very intense at the beginning of a relationship. And then, you know, it's a check in and a rebalance, and you know, as things happen. Uh, ongoing, there is definitely a, 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 a trail off in terms of the human capital required to look after a relationship. So I think they're onto something there. There's also other inefficiencies. It doesn't work well in a bear market. Yeah. So at the beginning, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we saw the uh, market just collapse, uh, and luckily that was you know very quick v recovery but advisors were working tremendously hard they were firefighting they were talking to clients they were doing everything and their billable fees were obviously on the decline sure and and we recovered quickly and and everybody kind of forgot about that and then finally um, there's a major problem with the AUM model when it when it uh, takes into account gathering new emerging wealth so you know, taking a bet on a high earner that uh, is uh, doesn't have a significant amount of assets yet to build, but will in in five years, ten years, fifteen years, advisors uh, need to really think about that. So there's a, a lot of creativity uh, that needs to happen, and I think that we're in the early stages of a revolution happening in terms of how uh, we see uh, advisory fees build in the future. Interesting. Any hint as to what that creative solution looks like? Are you seeing more hourly fees? Or we we absolutely see um, in our business we see advisors utilizing flat fees. We see advisors using um, uh, project related fees. We see advisors beginning to think about subscription. I mentioned it that we have a subscription offering. Um, advisory firms haven't yet truly adopted a subscription type of offering, but we, all of our other services that we're consuming, uh, in the, in the world these days seem <laughs> to come with a subscription. So that's nascent right now, but I think that, uh, we could see that, uh, see that evolve, uh, but it's going to be interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, private equity's got to love that, right? If if if, if you have a, bit, a public company and you change it to subscription or software as a service, uh, your stock price triples. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that is the revenue model that uh, investors want right now. I think one of the key shifts that we're going to see um, is this. Historically, financial services has been built on product fees and. And now that's shifted to an advice fee, but I really mm -hmm. believe that in the not too distant future, it's going to turn into an experience fee. And um, that's something that uh, advisors have an opportunity to to focus on. Wow, that that is interesting. And, and that sounds like it might make a lot of sense in terms of the wealth transfer that's coming. Uh, you make that experience good for the next generation and, um, and you won't face that problem that many advisors will, which is uh, the... The kid, when right. the kids take over, <laughs> they're going to say and, sayonara. And listen, 87% of uh, kids, when they get the wealth, they fire that current advisor. So that's yeah. a major problem. Yeah, it's a big problem. <laughs> um, all righty. Uh, so just briefly, um, before we get to the, the, the final question here, there's obviously some um, serious competition going on in, in your business for the independent advisor uh, as business. And it's gotten really interesting with all the consolidation that's going on, the pandemic as well. Um, I'm, I'm hearing from advisors who are TD advisors and thinking, okay, is, am I going to stick with Schwab? Am I going to look elsewhere? Um, is there any insight you can give us as to your business strategy for taking advantage of this? Sure. So, you know, the first thing, Jack, is uh, we're tremendously uh, respectful of our comp competition. Um, and uh, we know that uh, this is a, an environment that uh, there's plenty of business for all of us. As I mentioned, there is this, uh, you know, very much a, a movement towards the fiduciary advice business. However, when there is disruption, we view that as a great opportunity for us to, to grow uh, our business. And we have uh, invested significantly into the RA custody business at BNY Mellon Pershing. It is a, a growth business for us, and it's something that uh, we uh, aspire to capture uh, market share in. So that's very purposeful from the senior leadership team in order to uh, serve this uh, serve this marketplace. Um, and um, what we're focusing on is really what we do best. And what we do best is uh, help advisory firms scale and grow and compete in the marketplace. And that competition, to your point, is is absolutely uh, heated and encroaching on their businesses today. We're the only business-to-business -business provider, and we have a deep alignment with uh, those uh, firms that are on our, on our platform. Because at the end of the day, uh, it's very simple. When their business grows, our business grows, and this is the only business that we're in. So uh, we've got a laser focus on client experience, uh, a high-touch uh, service model. We know that that's an imperative for advisory firms, and uh, they don't want a call center type of, uh, of environment. They want dedicated uh, teams that they contact and know that person that's picking up the phone every every time or or engaging with them digitally and uh, we also are are uber focused on the technology ex uh, experience and making sure that we've got an integrated strategy to uh, work with the top fintechs and 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 make sure that we've got a, a very robust uh, API uh, integration strategy with them so uh, disruption creates opportunity. 
you you said B two B, and and that uh, obviously is something that differentiates you a bit from the others in that um, there isn't really a retail facing Pershing site where somebody can go trade. Uh, does that help you uh, in making the case to advisors? Well, it absolutely helps from an alignment perspective, um, and. Uh, there is no firm that has greater alignment with their clients than BNY Mellon Pershing. And the fact that we are the brand behind the brand and uh, really uh, come to work every day with the with the focus of serving the firms on our platform as our core uh, as our core revenue model is absolutely attractive. And one of the other things that's really interesting about the pandemic environment was the significant volumes we saw on all of the technology players in the space in terms of record trading volume and account opening volume and all of the other uh, uh, volume related items that come along in, in a very volatile market. And our website and uh, and trading infrastructure uh, remained up and uh, and consistent and stable throughout an incredibly high uh, volume and volatility environment we're, we're we're proud of that so their strength stability and resiliency while they may seem boring in an everyday uh, type of landscape they're really really important when it comes to uh, being able to be in the market when you need to be. Yeah, when you need it, you need it. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, uh, Ben. So in Barron's tradition, of course, we cannot let you go without asking you for at least one piece of actionable advice. So uh, listeners can put down their iPhone and just go right and execute it. What do you got for us? Sure. So uh, I would say change is everywhere in our industry, and that can be uh, scary and and cause trepidation. But what I consistently uh, talk to my team about and our employees about is we need to embrace that change because uh, just what we were talking about, with change comes opportunity. Um, And I also talk about uh, with my team to be very deliberate about what this means for our business. You mentioned this earlier. You can't, uh, there are finite resources. You have to be very specific about where you're going to allocate those resources and uh, what we do is we encourage our team to be very deliberate, to envision where we want this business to be in the next 5, 10, 20 years, and to make the very strategic prioritization to put that, uh, put the motion and uh, put those, place, those pieces in place uh, to get us there. So uh, that's what I would uh, share with the listeners. I think whatever business anyone's in, uh, the sentence, but that's the way we've always done it, is probably not going to be a formula for success uh, in the coming years. <laughs> we, we would agree. Uh, ben, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Great. Thanks, Jack. And thanks to everyone for tuning in. Come back next week for an episode hosted by Steve Sandusky. Steve will be talking to Annette Simmons, who explains how improving your storytelling skills can boost your business. Thanks again for listening to The Way Forward. This podcast is brought to you by ClearBridge Investments. Meet an evolving economy confidently with ClearBridge Active Equities, the foundation of a resilient portfolio. ClearBridge, a Franklin Templeton company. Go to clearbridge.com to learn more.